I don't want to um, piggyback too much on, on uh, what's already been said, but I, I feel like it's necessary. I was just here praying and I uh, feel like it's necessary. You know, I, I appreciate the opportunities I get to go speak in other places, and when I do that, I spend uh, a, a series of meetings and the focus is on, on uh, reviving people's hearts. And, and lots of times in those kind of scenarios, I am able to, uh, to uh, just uh, speak very candidly. And, and, and one of the things that probably all of you recognize is when you're somewhere else with people that don't really know you, right, then you can, uh, it just gives you this opportunity to maybe to be more honest or to be more candid or to just say things more directly than what, uh, what you sometimes otherwise do. And just this morning, I just, again, I, I too, I love the song, How Deep the Father's Love, and I'm always compelled, I couldn't do it this morning because I was playing, but I'm always compelled that when I get to the second verse there, we talk about the sin that was nailed Jesus to the cross. When it says, it was my sin that held him there, I don't know if, you ever, if it's ever true for you, but I, I'm just compelled to, to have to raise my hand and recognize, like, that was me. It was my sin. It's so easy sometimes, especially in corporate worship, it's so easy to sing songs as a body and, and forget that they, like, they, they apply to me, right? Like, they're, 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 they're about me, right? When I say the line, it was my sin that held me, him there, it, it, it isn't just to say that, you know, I agree intellectually and, you know, a lot of people sitting around me, really, they were very sinful. Or there's lots of people out there that really were very sinful, and it was their sin that helped. But to acknowledge, to internalize, it was my sin. I am part of the, re- I'm part of the reason that Jesus had to die. And it occurred to me as I was, we were praying just now that, you know, I, I should, I, maybe I don't know if I should say it more often or not, but it, I, I should say it this morning. I want you to know, I, I'm your pastor, I come up here and I... I, I teach just about every week, not quite every week, but just about every week. And I, I mean, I hope that you, I hope it's encouraging to you. I hope it feeds you. I hope, I hope I do what I'm supposed to do. But I, I, I'm a human just like you are. And I, God has done so many incredible things in my life and has allowed me to walk free from so many things that trapped me in my past. I'm still not perfect, though. I still do things, pursue my own way. I still, my arrogance comes out. Last night at a men's meeting, we're talking about Jesus instructing us not to judge people. And, and it's just like, like a sledgehammer, you know? Like times, I don't say it maybe out here critically, but there's times where in here I think things about people. And that's not right. That's arrogance. That's arrogance. It's somehow thinking that I have been somewhere that, these people clearly aren't there yet. They don't know that yet. And it's wrong. So I just, I don't know. I, 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 it's necessary for me this morning to just acknowledge it was my sin. I mean, you should say that too, but it was my sin that held Jesus there. He's done so much in delivering me from pride and sexual sin and all kinds of stuff in my life. But I'm not, I'm not perfect. I'm, I haven't arrived yet. I can agree with Paul. I forget what's behind and I strain to what's ahead. And I'm looking for that day when I can make fully mine what God is starting in me. And maybe that's a good introduction. I don't know. We're, we're going to be starting a new series. 
is something that's a bit different, actually, than what we've done before. I typically tend to just preach through a book of the Bible, or even when I'm doing something that's what I consider topical in nature, a topical series of some kind, it's still largely, I I take a text of Scripture, and I'm going to break that text apart and teach you what it means. This is almost... It's maybe not largely different, but it's a bit different than that because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take uh, us through our statement of faith and, I'm sorry, first of all, our statement of theology, and then our statement of faith and practice, and just, uh, I, there's going to be biblical teaching uh, for sure. Hopefully our statement of theology and our statement of faith and practice are based on Scripture, right? I'm going to help us see that. But it, I'm going to be starting with that, actually, and teaching through that, and I, I'll just, maybe just a real short glimpse uh, earlier this year, I think it was probably springtime still, and I was beginning to look down at the road and say, sometime this year, we're going to, Lord willing, finish the book of Acts. And it took us a little while to get through Acts, but I'm gonna, we're going to finish that, and where are we going to head next? I typically am spending, you know, three to six months before we finish something, looking and asking the Lord, where should we go next? And I just began to get impressed up- upon me to say, you know, our church has grown. We have new people that come in and out. We have all kinds of stuff, and, and that's good. I, I love that, but maybe we should spend some time just digging into, and originally I was thinking, looking at our statement of faith and practice. Honestly, what kind of triggered it is we had, we did some new members this morning. I think it was the prior group of, of new members we took in, and we sat with them, and we're going through our statement of faith and practice, and I realized that we do that, Heidi and I often actually are the ones that do that on an individual level with people. But rarely do we talk about it as a, at a corporate level. And I realize that many times as elders, as a body of, of leaders, we, a group of leaders, we're making decisions what to do and how to do things based on what we say we believe and how we live that out as a church. But maybe if you're like most of us, like me even, as I'm going through that with people, I recognize that I don't ever look at that document other than when I'm going through someone for new membership, right? Like, I don't pull that out and say, hey, this is what guides my life. Which, to some degree, I want to just be clear. That's okay. I should be pulling this out, not that document, right? This should be what guides. But to recognize that we have said some things about what we believe about God and what we believe that means about how we live our lives, that maybe just should be more talked about. And so, as I thought about that, I really was going to start uh, teaching through our statement of faith and practice today. And I realized as I thought more about it that I probably should take a step back and I should start with a statement of theology first because, uh, and I want to be clear about this. I want to make sure we understand this in our heads. What we do has to be driven by who we believe God is. I'll say that again because I think sometimes it's easy for us to just say, well, tell me how I should live my life. What we do has to be driven by who we believe God is. If I can make this statement now, you'll probably hear me say it a few times. If I can make this statement right up front, I suspect, I have every suspicion, as I've been preparing for this, and we're not, I mean, I'm just doing step by step, but as I've been thinking about it at a high level, I fully suspect that there will be times when we realize that there's things we say we believe about God that don't actually match up with what we do in our lives anymore. And I think that means we either need to say, is my belief about God incorrect, or is my outworking in my life incorrect? I would say, by the way, both are valid uh, options, but I would guess most times we're going to come on the side that says, my belief about God is right, it coming out of my life doesn't always come out that way, because it's not always the easiest or 
it's not always the most prudent or it's not always what everyone else says or it's not always what I've put in my life my whole life long. I'm having some issues connecting. I know why, Caleb. Can you just run my slideshow for me this morning so I don't have to thank you? I'm going to begin every time, every morning, every time we do this, with this book. We put these things in your uh, mailboxes a little while ago. There's more copies in, out. There's a little literature rack out there. And we put these things in. This is a statement of theology uh, from our, it's actually our conferences uh, uh, that we're, the network of churches were part of. It's drafted by them. It was, if you looked at it, how many, can I, can I just ask for a moment of honesty? That's where one goes, oh no, he's going to do it. How, did any of you read this actually? Few of you, oh, we have a few of you that read this. Good. Um, if you read this, you'll see when it was written and why it was written and all those kind of things. It's not a modern document by, by, by our standards. It was adopted in 1991. August of 1991 was when it was adopted by the ministers of the congregations that are part of our conference of churches. We as a local church have, have just said that we're not going to write our own statement. We're going to just adopt this. But we did write our own statement of faith and practice. We'll get to that. Uh, it'll be about, I don't know, 13, 14 weeks from now because we're going to spend time with each of these. Oh, you're going you're to hook me up. Thank you. So I'm going to start just by, if, I don't know if did any of you bring it with you today or not, but I'm going to start just by reading what this says because this is sort of the background for why we're going to talk about it. We're going to jump in with God, and the very first sentence, which you already see up there, is God is the one and only true God. And I put that up there because, honestly, that's a really great starting point, right? Like, that's really what we're trying to accomplish. That's the first biggest thing we have to say about our belief about God. And I hope it is your belief about God. There is no other God. There is only one. Like, he's the one and only true God. Just to read through it, however. God is the one and only true God. Eternal, perfect, and infinite in his being, holiness, love, wisdom, mercy, righteousness, and power. A lot of words in there. And if you, if, by the way, just for future reference, if you're going to start carrying it with you, I would carry it with you on Sunday mornings because uh, I'm going to be reading from this. It says that, we, says that we believe that God is transcendent above the world as its creator, yet imminent in the world as the preserver of all things. You see that play there? Transcendent above the world, yet imminent in the world. God is self-existent and self-revealing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are distinct in function, but equal in power and glory. Now, I'm going to stop right there. There's a lot of words, right? This is like theology stuff, so it's like, you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to fall asleep this whole time. I promise I'll do my best not to bore you to tears and make you fall asleep, especially children, by the way. This is great stuff. We need to know why we do the things we do, and it's based on who God is. This is what we're talking about. This is who God is. Now, I'm going to take a break there. If you have the book, if you have it with you, it actually goes on to talk about the Father, and the first article actually really should be to address God, who He is, and the Father. But I quickly realized, as you know, uh, is often the case, I quickly realized that's going to be way too much to cover on a Sunday morning. In fact, just this morning I told Chris, I think it was, that how am I supposed to give a comprehensive sermon on who God is on one Sunday? <laughs> not going to. I'll just say that. It's not going to happen, Okay. Like, you're going to be able to walk away and think right away, well, he didn't say this, and he could have, and you're going to be right. I could have said that about God. Because, I mean, if you didn't realize this, God is a lot bigger than what I can say in 30 minutes. Thank you. In fact, God's a lot bigger than I could say in my whole lifetime, actually. He is the one and only true God, and I'm convinced so many times, you'll hear me say this too, I'm convinced so many times we agree with things up here in our heads so readily and we don't stop and make sure, did that really come 
way down in here that I am convinced that God is the only true God. There's nothing else out there. There's no other, I mean, there's nothing that even comes close to him. And I have to try to reach into this subject <laughs> and give you, well, by now, 25 minutes. Digging into it. If you don't know this already, there should be a handout on the back side of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along and, and write the answers down if it helps you keep engaged. I'm just going to step through three things this morning that we're going to say about what God is. God, oops, I think I went backwards, didn't I? My bad. I got to figure out how to use this thing. I haven't used it in so long. Here's the first thing. God is, these three words were in there, and I happen to like those words. God is eternal. He is perfect. He is infinite. Now, those words overlap each other. If you stop to think about each one of them, they overlap each other. In fact, I would just encourage you, just stop for a moment. I know you're busy scribbling because I told you to fill out the handout. But just stop for a moment and just, just think for those, a minute about those words. Eternal. Perfect. And infinite. Just for those of you that are students in school somewhere... When we talk about infinite numbers in math, for example, that's called a theoretical exercise, right? It's theoretical. It's not like practical because we can all count. We can say one plus one is two because it's, it's practical. I can look at, and I can take one thing and one thing and one thing else and I can know that I have two and I'm done with. But when we deal with infinite, infinity, infinite kind of things, that's theoretical because, well, it's like beyond our you know, head. It's like not touchable kind of stuff. Those words, all three talk about the perfection, the wholeness, the completeness, the never-endingness, the all-encompassingness of God. He is eternal, He is perfect, and He is infinite. And every quality that you ever talk about God is, with, He is those. If you talk about His love, He is eternal and perfect and infinite in his love. If you talk about his grace, he is, you get my point. If you talk about his compassion, if you talk about his faithfulness, if you talk about his holiness, if you talk about his justice, if you talk about anything about God, he is all of that for all of those things. Once again, like, we, our brains can't even quite, like, put a handle on it. This is how, how amazing God is. If anything, I, we wanted, I want us to walk away from today and this whole time, but today and just recognize that whatever, however magnificent I've been thinking God is, I haven't even come close to it yet. I haven't even reached, I haven't, I've just, I've just dipped my finger in the Atlantic Ocean of it. And that's not even enough, right? That's not even enough, but it's the only visual I can give you. He is incredibly amazing. He's, we don't know these things. We don't, we don't understand these things. There's nothing we know apart from God and how he reveals himself to us that fits these things. There's nothing that's perfect. There's nothing that's infinite or eternal. Look at these words. I'll just keep on going. In Timothy, Paul writes these words, to the king of the ages. We study history. We divide them into ages. We trace the rise and falls of kingdoms. We rarely stop to think about it, but we are in an age of history ourselves, are we not? Where there's a rise and fall of kingdoms. To the king of the ages, to the one who transcends, the one who's beyond, the one who's bigger than all that. He's immortal. He's invisible. The only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
One of the reasons I picked that is not just because it talks about the immortality of God and the infin, infin, infiniteness. That's not really a word. How awesome God is, is because it also tells us that he deserves all the glory, right? Again, we have, these are things we have to lay down. That's why it's called foundations. We have to lay down before we do anything else. You cannot build any good practice of, what, of, of, of living a Christian life without beginning with these things about who God is. And everything is for his glory. Everything points to him. Everything must be done to lift him up. Otherwise, it's not, not done correctly. If you have your Bibles this morning, please open them. We're going to spend, the biggest chunk of verses we're going to read is in Isaiah chapter 40. I love these verses. They're incredible. They, they still, it's, it's, it's Isaiah trying, to, trying to, to give words to how amazing God is. Just let, I, I love to read the word of God. I hope I read it in a way that, that you, can, uh, you can be engaged with it. Follow along. Listen carefully. Whatever you need to do. These are the words that are a human's attempt at trying to describe who God is. Let them sink deep into your soul this morning. He begins in verse 9. I'm going to begin in verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And this is where he's going to introduce. So this morning I say to you, we're not in Jerusalem, we're not in any of those places, but we're going to lift up our voice. I'm going to lift up my voice with strength, and I'm going to say to you, behold your God. In other words, look at your God. Pay attention. Just take a glimpse of what this says about him. Verse 10, behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. By the way, carefully read these words or listen carefully because listen, he just began with, he's so powerful, he's so mighty, and then said, he will lead his shepherd. He will lead his sheep like a gentle shepherd. He will take his, the, the, the sheep in his arms. Total opposite picture, right? That he is incredible, mighty God, but he's such a gentle shepherd. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Don't, don't you love when the Bible asks questions? I mean, they just nail us to the wall. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's ever done that? Which one of you have weighed mountains? I didn't hear anybody say anything. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Whom did God consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who did that for God? Which one of us or what ancient man went to God and said, this is what justice really is. This is how righteousness really works. That's ludicrous, right? It's impossible, for he himself is the definition of righteousness and justice. Behold, verse 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. <laughs> How many nations are there in the world today? They're like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Like before you actually weigh something, got to blow it off, right? Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. All the nations together, less than nothing. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? 
A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Think of our ages of history, how long they are. Roman Empire, 200 and some years. Uh, go on. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. All of these things, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He's talking about the heavens. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, that my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? You ever feel like God's not being fair with you? Like the things that are happening in your life aren't fair? Like, they, like it shouldn't work this way? Like it's just not, it's, it's just, it's just, you're getting the raw deal? Listen, these verses help us to put that in perspective. Really? You're going to look at the heavens, and you're going to look at the stars, and you're going to look at the galaxies that we can't even see, but we're studying and learning more about them, and realize that he knows them all one by one. By his power, he calls them out. He knows every one of them by name. He holds them all together. And then you're going to approach him and say, hey, you don't know who I am. You don't really know what's going on in my life. Ouch. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even yous, even our young people, as strong as they are, they shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and faint. Listen, I just read to you a most impactful, all-in-one statement place of how incredible God is. And he says, listen, pay attention to your God. And then he asked one of these times, or one of those verses asked the question, whom then will you compare him to? Who will you say should be like God? And I believe you should answer that question this morning yourself, to yourself, about God. Who are you going to compare him to? Who? No one, right? No one. There is no one, nothing, absolutely nothing that you can compare God to. He stands apart and above and beyond and all around and everything you want to say from everybody else, from everything else. This is God. He's eternal, he's perfect, he's infinite. The word of God says, and we say in our statement of theology, we believe about God that he is self-existing and he's self-revealing. That's point number two. He's self-existing and he's self-revealing. I think you understand what those mean, but if you don't, it means that no one created God. He's always been, that's what it means to be eternal actually, but he's self-existing. He himself has always existed. It's why he came to Moses and he said, when Moses asked, who should I say sent me? He said, I am who I am. I, 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 I am. Like, I, I am. 
Think about that for a moment. Again, so there's things that we can't quite wrap our head around. But think about for a moment what that means. When he says, I am, he means I always have been and I always will be. I didn't have a beginning. Every one of us had a beginning, right? We call it our birthday. Quite frankly, we actually began before that, but our birthday is the day that we were born here into the world, and we call it our birthday. It's our beginning, right? Every one of us had one. When Moses came and asked God, who should I say sent me? God said, I want you to make sure they know that I am, I have been, I've always been. I've, 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 there's never been a beginning point for me. Again, it's hard for us to reach down deep and tear through the veil of things that are difficult to understand. But it is the groundwork we have to lay to understand who God is. The second part there I just went past says that he is self-revealing, that God reveals himself. In other words, we don't have to uh, wonder, God says all these great things about himself, but how am I supposed to know who he is and what he wants? He reveals himself. In fact, when Paul began his first chapter of the book of Romans, he said these words. He said, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Therefore, man is without excuse, right? We can't say, I didn't know that about you. Now, the first part of Hebrews, and we're going to save this for a couple weeks from now, but the first part of Hebrews starts off by saying, long ago, God spoke through prophets. Then he says, now he has spoken through his son. And when you read Peter, he says, you, long ago, were looking for the fulfillment of all the things God said, but he said, now you have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, and he's talking about this, the stuff that we're reading. It's confirmed now. Now we know that this is how God reveals himself, from his word to us. But it's not just in his word. It is in his word, but it's not just in his word, is it? In fact, in those same verses I just pointed out right here, it refers to the fact that God reveals himself to us through his creation, for example, which is why Isaiah appealed to that. He said, Look at the heavens. Lift up your eyes. Look. Can, is it not obvious? Is it not obvious that there's a God who's far greater than you and I? Only a fool would say it's not, of which there are plenty in this world. Right? Let's not be one of those. God has always existed, and God reveals himself to us. We would believe, now this is going to get down the road a little bit, but I'll just say it now. We would believe that God primarily reveals himself through his word to us, but he does it in other ways too. The point of it is that God is not just out there above everything and telling us how amazing he is, and we have to live to glorify him and then not revealing himself to us so that we have no clue what to do. Trust me, on the day you stand before the judgment throne, you will not get to claim like naivety, I can't say that word, innocence. You can't say, I had no idea. You, you won't be able to say that. I hope you know that, <laughs> right? All right. Let's do the last one. We're gonna fit this one in yet, and then we're gonna stop, and we're gonna talk about the Father next week. We're not gonna talk about the Father today, the specific part of this. But God is triune. This is one of the fundamental theological statements that would actually distinguish us from some uh, strains of, of Christianity. God is triune, which is simply to say he's three in one. He's three in one. Now, I say this, and I'm going to give you some scripture to, for why we say this, because we see God express himself in three distinct persons. Just to kind of build up to this, by the way, if you go to the beginning of scripture in Genesis chapter one, when God is creating everything, right? He says something very interesting, and you've probably heard this before, so I'm not telling you something new. But in Genesis chapter one, when he's created all these things and he wants to come to create man, 
He comes to the crowning achievement of his creation because it's to the place that he will put his own likeness into. But when he says that, look at what he says. And it has to do with, the reason it's translated this way is because it has to do with the, uh, the verb tense, or the verb, uh, it's a plural, they're plural verbs, so that you have to say there's plural nouns because you wouldn't mix, mix, mismatch those. And he actually uses in the next verses after that the singular nouns, or singular verbs again. But it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. If God were not triune, then we would be forced to say, or that would say, God said, I want to make man in my image after my likeness. You see the difference, the distinction? But he used plural nouns because the verb is plural. He says, when he says, let us make, it's a plural verb. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, you may be right away saying, hold on, you just made this great big point. In fact, you're like shouting at us that there's only one God, right? One true God. And now you're going to tell me there's three in one. Well, that's the part we have to emphasize here in a bit. Three in one. If I can be honest with you, which I think I should be honest with you, and hopefully you're willing to be honest with yourself and with us, there are lots of things about how this works and what we're going to say about what we believe about God that we don't fully understand. I will only endeavor to teach you what I can read to you from the Word. And it says that God is the one true God. It also says when he created man, he said, let's make man in our image. It also says that when he spoke to Moses and wanted to teach the children of Israel about himself, that he said this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why would he say that if he was not trying to make some statement of the unity of who God is? Now, many people will say in the Old Testament, there's not much indication of, of the Trinity, Therefore, maybe it's something we should disregard. Maybe it's maybe something we kind of write it, read into it. They'll say, and I would submit the two ones I just showed you here shows you that God was already revealing himself that way to them. I also want to point us to this verse here, which we don't often think about, perhaps, but Isaiah 48, 16 says this. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Now, why do I pick this verse out? Well, particularly look at the end of what it says. It says, and now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. So it mentions the Lord God and his spirit. Now, if you were to look, and you can flip there if you'd like to, if you were to look in Isaiah 48 at some of the surrounding verses, they're interesting verses. For example, if I were to start reading in verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purposes on Babylon, and his arms shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. If we were to say, for example, that those last lines were Isaiah saying those things, then we would have to go back up a couple of verses and recognize that Isaiah was saying, I am he, I am the first and the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. I don't think Isaiah says that about himself, does he? 
You know, in Scripture, we have this, this amazing thing that happens, which is that as God reveals himself and as God lays things out, there's things that he speaks to people that have application right there at the moment. And then as later on you go back and read that, you realize that they're actually pointing to other things as well. I submit to you that this is one of those cases. And if you look at some of the surrounding chapters in Isaiah, you're beginning to hear about Jesus. As Isaiah begins to reveal Jesus, all that to say... And this is not what I'm building the case on of God being triune, by the way. So, I, you know, there may be other things you could say. Well, let's, let's look at this differently. But I say all that to say that here we have an example of a reference, what I say is a reference to Jesus, that when God sent him, he spoke clearly, and he himself says, I was the one who was there from the beginning, first and last. I laid the foundation to the world. And God sent me and his spirit. In other words, a reference being, if that's Jesus saying that, a reference to the Trinity. It becomes a lot more clear in the New Testament, by the way. I can just point you to one verse. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, as Paul's winding up his letter, he says, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, be with you all. It would be a lot nicer, right, if the Bible was just always that clear. I would tell you, however, let's not be afraid to bump into things that we don't fully understand. If I were to tell you, and you agree with me, that we will never fully understand God, and then if we're afraid to bump into things we don't fully understand, that would by necessity mean that we're kind of afraid of bumping into God, which I would say is the exact opposite kind of approach we should have as Christians. Which is to say, if God cannot be fully known, we must, by necessity, press into him and discover things that we don't really fully understand. And we have to be okay with that. I would say that's precisely why there's such a strong theme in Scripture that says, the righteous live by what? Faith. That the things that God says about himself in here that we say, but I don't understand how that works, God says, precisely. Will you believe that about me despite not understanding it? Can you live by faith? Reminder, without faith, it is what? Impossible to please him. There are times when we don't like to press into things that we don't fully understand because it kind of spins our head and we're like, that kind of feels like I'm losing some solidity in my faith. When the reality is, our faith should be the one that drives us to say, though I do not understand everything about who God is, I will believe by faith the things he makes clear in his word are true about him. And I will operate, we're gonna to get to that down the road a bit, but, but I will operate accordingly. I will live my life accordingly. I will live my life accordingly. These, the same theme, by the way, just closing out the, 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 the text of the, the sermon here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is a theme that Paul often picked up on. I would tell you it's present in Philippians chapter uh, 2 when he begins to tell us that if there is any encouragement, anybody know how those verses go? I know my kids do if they're paying attention. That's a good way to get them to pay attention, by the way, right there. <laughs> Sorry, just had everyone laugh at your expense. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any what? Any comfort from love, any 
participation in the Holy Spirit and the Spirit. Do you see how he just picked up that same theme? If there's any encouragement from being in Christ, any comfort from love, I would tell you he's referring to the love of God, and any participation in the Holy Spirit. By the way, does anybody know what he goes on to say? What's Philippians chapter 2 going to go on to say? They could quote it for you, by the way. Maybe I should have them come quote it. He said, make my joy complete. Be like-minded. Have the same mindset. And he draws that mindset to the mind of Christ, who, even though he was what? Equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of man. And when he was found as a man, he, he humbled himself even further and became obedient as a servant, obedient to death, even death on the cross. It's because of that reason that God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow, whether it's in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He begins all of that by saying, the reason we should have to take that kind of journey that Jesus did is if we have any encouragement from being in Christ, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, or we have any comfort from knowing the love of God, the love of God is there, and if we have any participation, which is actually the same word, fellowship, any fellowship with the Holy Spirit. If we have had any of those, I'm going to digress too far. I won't, don't want to do that. Our time has come to an end. We're beginning this study. There's lots of things we have to put together. There's lots of questions maybe wrestling out, kind of floating out there, but we're going to kind of piece this together. Next week, we're going to focus on the specific father part of the Trinity of, of God, and of course, the weeks after that, we'll do Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much. It seems to me, God, that the most important thing we could do as we close in prayer this morning is to simply do everything we can. Take control of every thought. Focus every bit of attention we have. Direct all of our faculties, everything we, ha we can towards you. And sit here this morning amazed at who you are. Who can we compare you to? Who is like you? What kind of comparisons can we draw? We can make analogies, your word does. We can give word pictures, your word does. We can be spoken to powerfully about the mighty great things, and yet even all of those just, they just fall short. Oh, God. Just, I've I got to say this. It seems to me, it seems to me in my head this morning, as I'm thinking about how sometimes I, I'm not so eager for heaven. I'm not so eager. There's other things that draw my attention. It seems to me an indication of how little I think of you. And I'm sorry about that, God, for that means I have not elevated you to the place that you rightly deserve. I have not glorified you the way that you rightly are and should be glorified. You are high and lifted up. Thank you, Father. I'm so grateful, God, that your Holy Spirit is able to press things into our minds that I can't, I don't even know of or can't say or can't put all together. Thank you for you, your goodness in our lives. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.